Welcome to the Profitable Farmer Podcast, where we share stories and tips to help you run a better farming business and create your very own freedom farm. If you're looking to work smarter and not harder in your farm business, welcome, you're in the right place. G'day team and welcome again to Profitable Farmer. As many of you go up and down in long straight lines or round and round in circles um, with sewing, it just seemed perfect timing for me to reach out and make a request of Stefan Vogel to join us on Profitable Farmer and give us a grain commodities update and outlook. Now, Stefan is the general manager to Rabo Research Australia, New Zealand. I find Rabobank just a fascinating company. Um, 120 years of history as the leading agribusiness specialist to farm, farming families around the world, a Dutch cooperative with over, I think, Stefan, 140 analysts around the world, um, serving from a banking standpoint something like 9 million businesses globally. So it is quite an incredible company dedicated to agriculture and just think about that for a minute 140 analysts just imagine the insight and the knowledge and the wisdom that that team must have and so it's with that in mind I'm just really privileged to um, invite Stefan into Profitable Farmer and I think you're going to get a glimpse of of that insight and that wisdom. Um, Stefan himself is an amazing character um, with an amazing insight about our industry locally and globally. Stefan, welcome. Great to be on the podcast, Jeremy. Uh, thanks for having me. And, and as you described, I mean, I'm part of a really big team. And uh, if you look at Rabobank, as you say, we started out so many years ago, um, figuring out that there were a bunch of farmers who thought, well, if we just had a little bit more money, we could actually all strive. And uh, the cooperative model clearly is a perfect one to actually help a group of people to reach the next level. And uh, we haven't moved away as Rabobank from that over time. And we are still a cooperative. We are still very much focused on food and agri uh, financing around the world. So in the Netherlands, yes, we are a big bank and we are amongst the top three banks and we do everything with everybody from house mortgages and private checking accounts to all kinds of industries. But as soon as we're leaving the Netherlands, it's a pure food and egg focus. And uh, that's what I personally love about it. I'm, I'm, I'm a German farm kid uh, working for a Dutch company now in Australia. Um, and, and it has been a fantastic ride for me personally. But if I look at, at what we do as a research team, the value really comes that we have people looking at farm inputs. And so very much all the way up on the stream to everything you can find in a supermarket and the consumer knowledge behind it. Um, and from sugar to grains to sheep, we cover pretty much all the farming and, uh, and research around that in the middle. Plus we have an economics team, which very much talks to me all the time about geopolitical changes and uh, not only the war in Ukraine, but also what to think about the future of China and what that could mean for our trade. So there's, there's a lot coming. And uh, as a cooperative, we've also decided to not only keep that knowledge internally and make sure that we understand the clients we're banking, but that we actually share that knowledge to uh, all of our clients for free. And, uh, and so great to also be on the podcast here and just uh, work with you through a couple of themes around the commodity side, which that's where my passion is. I'm, I'm with my heart and soul for the last 20 years in grains and oil seeds and coffee and cocoa. So uh, love that commodity space. What's your connection 
to agriculture. You mentioned growing up on a farm in Germany. Can you give us a bit more insight? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I, I'm almost ashamed to call it a farm because you guys here in Australia would not call those 15 hectares, 15, yes, not 15,000, uh, and five cows, not 5,000 uh, a farm. So, but uh, I spent pretty much all my youth uh, at my grandfather's uh, tiny little farm, which unfortunately is long gone. Um, the change of tides in Germany basically means that those 20 little farms in the village now have merged into one farmer who is doing maybe 400 hectares, which still doesn't sound very impressive for many Australian farmers, but uh, uh, that's kind of the way that uh, Germany has, uh, has come. We still have a rather small farm size, especially in the Western areas where I've grown up, but I loved farming, um, studied ag economics after that, uh, which gave my mom almost a heart attack because uh, it was not sexy when I started studying it we didn't have record high prices we didn't have uh, all this volatility and global excitement but um, honestly it has been a perfect ride I really enjoyed it and in the future of food is so important I mean uh, we're having a global population where now as agriculture also by many countries and many companies looked at the ones that need to clean up the emission space um, so there's a whole lot of uh, extra services that will come down to farm that we need to address so I think Farming is a great place to be in, and, uh, and and I think it will remain so in in many many years down the road as well. We can't quite grow fifteen ton of the hectare crops like you guys can. So maybe four hundred hectares in uh, in Germany is a significant holding, Stefan. <laughs> it is, but you know when I look at the big tractor that my friend is uh, driving on that farm. Uh, I have to go to the dairy areas here in New Zealand to find the similar kind of tractor. And uh, you guys usually use the, a little bit of a bigger machines, which doesn't don't, or which don't even fit on our roads in Germany to get them to the field. So that's a little bit the, the, the fun why I also love Australia down here. I mean, uh, it is impressive how the farming sector looks and no matter where you are, and I'm just returning from the Northern Territory where a lot of the beef guys now looking at planting cotton uh, and, and how to make that work and how to change the supply chains and building cotton chins and shipping the cotton out of the ports in Darwin rather than sending it three and a half thousand kilometers over to Queensland as they have to do today. So um, the innovation on farm and in the supply chain is just impressive in this country. I think that's a great comment. It might just be me, but I feel like we're in a really interesting time in agriculture. You know, we've come out of COVID and, um, you know, we've come out of some really, for many, positive seasons. Um, we've had inflated commodity prices well above long-term average and now all of a sudden we arrive into a market perhaps where there's high, increasing inflation, in, increasing interest rates and perhaps softening commodity prices. What's your view of, just as a global comment for Australia, what's your view of the um, agri-economic climate that we find ourselves in. Yeah. Look, last year was just a, a perfect year. I mean, uh, having big crops and big prices is uh, just not what you usually have. And I think uh, Australian farmers really enjoyed that, but also deserved it. But even the year before was a good one. So uh, I think, as you pointed out, we're maybe going a little bit back to reality these days that commodity prices have already come down and, and it is across everything uh, from beef to grains to, to dairy that are coming down or have come down already. The good news I see clearly is also that the fertilizer side has come down quite a bit as well in the last 
10 months or so. And that is the really important part here, I think, for the margin side of things um, that we're not going to get carried away by very high input costs. And then later on, uh, the commodities uh, face an issue. But I think today we're going to talk a bit more about the grain side of things. And uh, yes, I know that Chicago is hovering at uh, two-year lows uh, on the wheat side. Um, it might not be easy to get us anywhere close to the prices we had last year, but in my mind, the good news is now that um, at least from the wheat side, I don't see a whole lot of pressure anymore in those markets because uh, uh, it feels to me that in some regions, the crop are a little bit off overestimated. And I'm not talking about Australia. I'm talking about uh, the regions that are competing with us in the export market. Um, but we also need to be very well aware, and we're going to talk about that maybe also later on, that uh, the corn market is one of those where you see uh, a potential that if the U.S. finally gets the yield somewhere right again, um, that actually there could be a lot of feed grain out of the U.S. trying to move into those markets that we're partly serving with wheat these days. Perhaps before we get into the local predictions that you're making, Stefan, what are you seeing um, by way of production at the moment in the major grain producing nations? Well, let's start off on the wheat side. And um, already there, we're getting a little bit uh, very different messages. If you're looking at the first estimate that the US government has released here a good about two weeks ago or so for the season 23-24, which basically means the Europeans will harvest that crop in about a month and a half or a month. So when they're hitting July, they're going to be out in the field. Um, so it's it's coming rather quickly. And if you look at that estimate, they told us, well, we're going to have a more or less balanced supply and demand. Uh, the wheat crop will not be much uh, bigger or smaller than last year and, and go through that. While if you're looking at the International Grains Council, uh, which also does a pretty good job in forecasting, they're actually a bit more conservative around uh, the wheat production side. And that gives me a bit of optimism that maybe some of the crops that we're seeing these days are overrated. So maybe let's go step by step through maybe the handful of competitors that we have out there on the wheat market in, in terms of exports. Um, starting off with the US, uh, clearly the heat wave over there is taking a toll on the crop. And uh, that's the case, especially in that Texas, Oklahoma uh, kind of area where you have the hard red winter wheat. Um, and that's also where maybe the, the soft wheat isn't moving as much. So we in Australia, usually when we look at the Chicago futures, we usually have a look at what is the soft wheat doing. And therefore, we're looking more at those crops that are growing south of Chicago um, and traded at the exchange there. Um, but I think the US side is a bit tighter than, uh, than maybe shown by the US government. And that's usually good news for us as we're competing with them and as they're the ones with the exchange. Um, just going a little bit north of the US, um, Canada, I think, also is not yet completely figured out what happens there. We have clearly seen early on big numbers, how the acreage is rising, how the crop could be increased there year over year. But also you see quite a bit of the region um, that is facing now drier and hotter conditions for a while. And if you think about Canada, they're planting all of their wheat as a spring crop. So they've pretty much just only put it in the ground over the last six, eight weeks. And, and with that, um, there, a lot can still happen to that crop. While in the US, it's pretty clear they would actually uh, harvest uh, in a few days. And, and with that, 
on their uh, winter wheat side, the yield damage is already done. So North America asset um, maybe not as plentiful supplied as the US numbers make us think. And then we need to take a step over to Europe. Um, if you're looking into the European Union, you see a lot of different messages because it is a rather sizable country and you get these messages, oh, it's so hot, it's so hot, it's so hot. But if you look at the hot and dry weather, it's down in the south. We're talking Spain, we're talking Italy, and those two countries are rather big importers of feet because they're producing some really nice and tasty ham in those regions. They have a lot of hogs around and they're bringing in quite a bit of grain themselves. So the, the crops in those regions usually never move into the export market. But if you look into the northern areas, and that's where we have to talk about France, Germany, but even also in the east, if you're going just south of Ukraine and you remain in the European Union, you're in Romania, which is a big export powerhouse. Um, all of those regions actually look pretty good. Um, we've seen a lot of headlines through the winter in France that it was so dry and all the rivers have dried up. Da -da -da -da. We have seen quite a bit of rain in the region as well. The crops are actually looking pretty good in that region. And that is kind of the the problem child for us maybe on the one side in Europe, because Europe is, is a big kind of moving piece. If they don't have enough wheat, they import a lot of corn and they keep their wheat domestically and, and don't export too much. If they have a decent wheat crop, they still try to find as much corn from the world market, the likes of Ukraine and Brazil, um, to bring it into their feeding sector and just make sure that locally grown wheat doesn't move to, uh, can move into the export market. So that's, I think, what we will see this year if the corn market is providing significant volumes and it looks like that in Brazil, there's a lot of corn coming in the US, there can be a lot of corn coming. The Europeans will continue to import massive volumes of corn into Europe and free up wheat for the export market that is domestically grown wheat that just moves out of France and Germany and Romania and so on into the exports. So that is, is one of the competitors we still have, but the real biggies in this market are even further to the East and we need to talk about Ukraine and we need to talk about Russia in that instance. Ukrainian crop exports so far have been good. Uh, the grain deal has been renewed and everybody calls it the grain deal, but basically what it is, when the war started uh, well over a year ago, Putin put his vessels in front of uh, the Ukrainian ports and said, if any of your ships move, we're going to shoot. So for about three, four months, no vessel at all has moved. And then the European Union, the US, the United Nations, the Russians, the Ukrainians all got on a table and discussed and discussed and said, look, we need to allow the Ukrainians to supply food to the world market. And with that, for specific periods of time, the Russians allowed the Ukrainians to export. And every time you see that these three months, four months periods when the grain deal is in place, and as soon as it's expiring, uh, the Russians are ramping up their bargaining power and say, look, guys, uh, we need to somehow uh, discuss the sanctions that are imposed on us as Russia. And you need to remove some of those, otherwise I'm not extending the deal. But so far it has always been extended. What Ukraine is facing these days, um, the next crop will be down probably another 20% from the already very low levels we have seen last year. So not a good crop. We still have seen lots of volume coming this season out of Ukraine uh, just because they had stocks around. They had a, a harvest last year that was bigger than the ones that we, they will harvest this year. And, and so far, they're still exporting decent volumes of grain to the world market, which is hurting a bit our prices. But if we're looking into next season, I think we're going to have to cut their exports once again down by another good 
30, 35% um, from the levels we've seen this year. So less volume coming from Ukraine is probably not a bad news for us as Australians because that has been one of the price pressures we've seen. Um, why is the crop further down? They are they're cutting back further on acreage just because of the war, but they're also facing still significantly high costs in terms of the inputs. And they're facing significantly high costs also in the supply chain to get the grain out of the country uh, because clearly there's a lot of risk involved. And if you look at the latest grain deal, it was signed, but it will expire in the middle of July. So basically they have two month, two weeks, uh, the combines in the field rolling. And as soon as they want to ship wheat to the world market, that grain deal is once again shaky. And, and so a lot of the grain exporting companies will have to take a look and say, well, what do I actually do? Do I buy from farmers, try to get it out of the country, and then the ports don't work? So we need another extension of that grain deal. And uh, Putin will very well know that at that point in time, the pressure will be a bit more on Ukraine to make it successfully happen than it was maybe the last months when they were hitting the end of their season. And the last one to really look at is Russia, because that's the one that uh, pressured our prices here a lot in the last few months. Um, Russian crop last season has been phenomenal. Um, if you look at the US government, they're talking in the mid 90 million ton wheat crop. And that is pretty much more than twice of the wheat that we produced in the record season here in Australia. But um, if you're looking at some private numbers, they're all still above 100 million tons. So it was a heck of a lot of wheat that Russia has harvested because of good yields, but also some of that volume is probably coming from Eastern parts of Ukraine. Um, nevertheless, what we have seen the impact of it is that the exports, especially since January this year, when, when they are hit, hitting their winter, usually that's the point in time when they're running a little bit out of grain in the country, because usually they're harvesting 70 million, maybe 80 million tons of grain, but not 100. That's the time when they're running out of wheat for exports, and they just haven't done that this year. Um, every month since the beginning of this year, they're breaking records on the volume side and that's just hurting our prices globally because there's been a stream of wheat coming if we're looking into next season you need to look at russia with two different eyes the one side is they have a big winter wheat area um, and uh, about half of the area of wheat in russia is winter wheat so that was planted already in october you can have a pretty decent idea that the yields are good uh, in the region but they also have a sizable area that is spring wheat. So 50% of the area and, oh, sorry, 30% of the area and maybe 50%, sorry, on the other way around, 50% of the area, but 30% of the crop in Russia usually is spring wheat. So uh, that is a crop that was only recently planted and we still need to see how that plays out. Um, but overall, it looks like now um, we have to just assume it is unfair to say, well, they're gonna have another 100 million tons record crop. Um, we have to go in a bit more conservative, but the conservative number that people are using these days is in the mid 80 million ton range, which would be the second highest crop roughly that they ever had. So it's still a big crop that's coming. They probably have similar issues like we do that there are still a lot of uh, bins full with grain even towards the end of their season so that they also have stocks that they can move. So with that, I think Russian wheat will continue to move to the world market, uh, especially when the new season starts. Recently, you see a couple of headlines that they may try to slow down exports here at the end of their season. But as I said, in, in four weeks time, they are harvesting again. In four weeks time, they want to move the new crop to the world market. So even if they block their exports for four weeks, it's not going to be a long-term block in terms of what Russia uh, is preventing from coming to the world market. So all in all, in all um, there's still quite a bit of European grain, Russian grain, 
uh, coming to the world market and that has the power to put pressure on us. But all those uh, weather issues, especially in North America, but also um, we have to think about how Australia may shape later on if we get an El Nino and we can discuss that in more detail. Um, I think there is still also a little bit of hope to say that, well, prices have come down quickly and uh, they are all justified if things go very well from here on forward, but we have not seen a lot of seasons in the past where everything went very well from here on forward. So there's also a good chance that a few more issues pop up with weather and, and we may see those prices moving a little higher again. Fantastic summary, Stefan. Thank you. What about Argentina? And you mentioned El Nino. Um, I predict that I understand that Argentina might be facing a similar drier period. Yeah. What, what's their outlook? Yeah. Well, if you look at Argentina, um, they usually face the opposite of our weather. So uh, while they are on the southern hemisphere, while they're usually exporting at the same point in time as we do when, when the rest of the world is in winter and usually the exports are slowing down in the rest of the world, Argentina and we in Australia are the ones moving more grain to the world market. Um, clearly, they're coming out of a terrible season in, in the region. Their wheat crop wasn't great. Now they have uh, a harvest of soybeans uh, uh, more or less done, and uh, it isn't great either. And, and the scary part there is a bit, um, the market has still come down a lot despite the weather issues that Argentina is facing as one of the largest soybean and largest corn producers in the world um, because neighboring Brazil has pretty much offset at all. But if you're looking on the wheat side, um, if we're getting an El Nino, it probably actually means we will be drier and the Argentinians will be wetter. Um, so if I need to put down who's going to uh, look good next year, Argentina may actually look pretty good with their next crop uh, when they harvest. But for now, the volumes that they're exporting on the wheat side are very limited just because they had dry weather uh, in, in the country there when they harvested. And they harvest pretty much the same time as we do here in Australia. So they've already harvested four, five, six months ago. Coming back to your comments around the grain deal, um, what outlook or predictions can we make around that Black Sea grain corridor and, um, and how things might play out in that part of our world? Um, if you look at the grain deal, um, first of all, I think Ukraine has done a fantastic job over the last, let's say, year in terms of exports. I mean, for a country in the middle of a war, for a country where you would think, well, they have a lot of borders and, and a lot of grain probably moves anyway across the border. No, before the war, 95% or more of the grain has moved through ports. So it isn't much different from an island. You need to get your grain to a port to be really economically viable export nation. And that's what they've done. They have some really good ports in the south. And those ports so far are still a little bit out of the war zone, but they're not very far away anymore, the Russians in the south. Um, so big ports like Odessa, Mykolaiv, um, I think what we could see if the Ukrainians are not successful with the counteroffensive that they're or the counter war that they're trying to do and, and get some of the land back that the, the Russians have occupied, then maybe the Russians will do a push themselves. And uh, and it has been made very clear from Putin's side in the early days that he would actually love to have the whole South. And, and that would mean also he would have those ports and uh, if that would be successful, the remainder of the growing areas of Ukraine would be a landlocked country, basically, and he would have to back 
the one who just occupied his territory to go with the grain through through those ports. So that would be kind of a, a real strange outcome and a terrible outcome. But right now, I think that the more realistic one that we need to plan for is basically this discussions about the grain deal will continue. In in uh, middle of July, it will expire. Putin will once again say, oh, you haven't removed enough of my sanctions in terms of payments, and you still have a lot of sanctions on all these oligarchs and whatever. So he, he will try and, and, and negotiate further on that deal. Um, and on the other side, we also have seen that Ukraine has moved a bit away from just exporting everything through ports. Uh, nowadays, you can see that over the last, let's say, six months, they've shipped about 30% of their grain through inland ways into neighboring countries by truck, maybe put it on a barge and ship it down into Romania, into the export port there, ship it through train uh, in, into Hungary and up then into Poland and, and into the export market there. We had a lot of headlines a few weeks ago where a lot of the Eastern European countries have said, oh, there's so much grain that is just supposed to move through the country, but actually it stops here. And then the feed guys locally buy it and it's ruining our farmer income prices for the local grown grain. Da -di -da -di -da -da. So, well, to put it bluntly, they went to Euro to the European Union and blackmailed the European Union and said, oh, we're going to block the imports. And then the European Union came with a big fat check. And, uh, and so um, for now, we have to assume that there will be a continued way of uh, grain moving out of Ukraine into the European Union and beyond the European Union then into the export market. But it will not be enough to keep the flow out of Ukraine uh, going. And it is a very expensive one. So it is kind of your worst option in terms of moving stuff out. Uh, very costly, very time consuming, not a lot of margin left on farm. Um, but with 30% less or 35% less export potential for wheat that I see next season, even if the grain deal isn't in place for a few months, Ukraine will export some of the volumes through neighboring countries. And just because you don't have a grain deal in place uh, when it expires doesn't mean that you don't get them on in place again. The negotiations will go on and maybe we get it in August. And that will probably or could be a, a nice marketing opportunities for farmers because those headlines, oh, the grain deal is falling apart, nothing is coming, we're going to lose. The market might panic a little bit and move a bit to the upside. Um, but as I said, um, I still see chances that people will go back to the negotiation table and figure out a deal and then the prices will come down after a few days. So um, as, as an Australian farmer, I would rather think, well, that's not a that's not the likely scenario that no grain comes out of Ukraine if the market is anticipating something like that and brings a price premium, um, take it and, and, and use it for your own advantage because it probably doesn't last very long. Stefan, a fantastic insight into the supply side. What would your comment be around trends and changes of note on the demand side for, for cereals? Well, maybe the... the Big one to talk about here is on the barley side. Um, clearly, if you look at barley, uh, we see significantly more positive comments coming out of the relations with China in that regard that, uh, well, we hopefully gonna find a solution that our barley can move over into the region. Um, yes, it may help some of those uh, farmers here who are also still working with uh, more malting varieties because uh, clearly as soon as the Chinese market has shut down, we as Australia were forced to go much more strong into the feed market and uh, go into the likes of Saudi more aggressively um, to find our outlet. So all to say, 
I think we're going to see a solution that some of the barley out of Australia can move again into the Chinese market here, hopefully in the next couple of months. Uh, it is, I think, a better outcome than if the WTO would have stepped up because clearly it's just shortly before the headlines were full that uh, we want to find a bilateral agreement with the Chinese as Australia to resolve the situation. Also, the WTO would have come out to say, look, uh, we reviewed the situation. They were just about to publish a report on that. And But whenever you get the WTO in, it is usually not a, a three-month scenario. It's a three-year scenario. So the good news for us is that if, if we get it solved bilaterally, it will be much quicker than if the WTO would have stepped in. But I also don't expect miracles from it. I mean, uh, let's be very realistic. Um, the Chinese would have bought the necessary volumes in Europe or in South America. And, and with that, um, we're just moving stuff a little bit around and it may help us here and there a bit, but I don't think we should overestimate that part. But if we're talking barley, I think a lot of people nowadays, when they think about feed supply and demand around the world also need to look at the corn market. Um, what you see is that a lot of the feed consumers around the world are rather flexible, meaning if wheat and barley are cheap, well, let's feed that and, uh, and rather than corn and vice versa. And we don't have to shift hundreds of millions of tons. It's, it's easy enough if a few players in Europe, in Asia, in Northern Africa say, well, let's take a couple more cargos of feed corn rather than feed wheat. And we're moving a few million tons of demand out of our wheat into or our barley into, into corn. And that is, I think, the risk that we may face this year. If you look at the acreage in North America, it isn't massively big, but it is a big corn area that they have planted. And um, they had last year specifically quite a bit of a yield issue. Um, it was once again hot and dry in some regions. Um, if you look at the Midwest these days, it isn't perfect but there are chances that they finally get a bit of a better yield in than uh, they did last year. And if that is happening, we will have a more normalized corn supply out of North America because what we've seen last year was not normal. With that reduced volume, that also helped the wheat market to continue to further rally up. Um, so there is more price pressure coming if the yield in the US turns out well. Clearly also South America is having decent crops, especially Brazil. Um, as mentioned, Argentina doesn't, but Brazil just looks big. So if you take all of that, um, that is the big bear in the room for prices. If uh, if we have a, a real bearish pressure, it probably comes out of the corn market and very good yields there. But for corn, it's always very difficult to assess where we stand. We still need to go through the pollination period in the US and that's kind of that July, August uh, window um, when we learn more about the yield side of things for now. We just have to sit tight for another three months or four months to actually get a bit of a better idea how the corn crop turns out. That's maybe on the demand side in that space, but I think also at some point in time we need to talk oil seeds because also there can be a shift in terms of demand. Let's touch on that now. That was my next question. Is um, <laughs> what's we, reading your mind? Yeah, you can clearly. <laughs> um, before we come back to, to looking at Australian production, I'd love for your take on on oil seeds globally. Yeah, sure. Um, so if you look at oil seeds, uh, you have a couple of really interesting trends. Uh, first of all, 
let's start on the canola side. We are in the middle of a season where there was just way too much canola. I mean, everybody did a pretty good job in producing it. We had a record crop here in Australia, but we're not even the biggest in the room. The Europeans had the fifth, uh, the best crop in five years. So as a big import nation, having a good crop means that well, two, three million tons of imports are maybe not materializing, uh, even so they're importing a lot these days. Um, but they had a very good crop and that's concerning. Plus you had the Canadians recovering from the drought they had the year before. So that they had pretty much more normal levels again coming to the market. So if you look globally in the canola space these days, we have pretty much 17, 18% more volume. And that is just a massive amount of, of crop that we need to chew through. Um, we got a little bit of support from our friends in the soybean space. Uh, we talked about Argentina earlier today. Argentinian crop is as bad as it can get. And the soybean market has not really reacted to it. I mean, last time Argentina had such a miserable crop. The soybean market went ballistic through the roof uh, because it is the third largest export nations on the soy commodity side. Um, and, and so with that uh, reason why it didn't go so high, the soybean market was just every time the Argentinian crop forecast was lowered, the Brazilian forecast was increased. And so it was more of a left pocket, right pocket situation. But overall, South America had a pretty decent soybean crop. So we didn't get the help from that market that we wanted. Um, where I see some real help coming is out of the North American demand side. Um, the North American biofuel market is really structurally changing and it is changing for carbon reasons. So all of those farmers which tell me that, oh, carbon don't matter and I don't care about it. Well, if you don't care on it uh, about it on your farm, you may actually care about it that others in the world are caring about it because you're benefiting with your canola from it. What we see these days is the Californians um, went in and said, we wanna clean up our emissions as a state. And we just put a legislation out that says, lower the emissions in the transport sector. And you have to do every year a little bit more. And that's all they did. They didn't say, oh, use biodiesel, use ethanol, use whatever. So basically the industry now is at the point where they can say, might be, all these uh, electric cars that are driving around and, and, and this is the way that they lower the emissions. Oh, it might be nitrogen and hydrogen cars wherever they stand in, in the process these days. But one of the real big technologies that a lot of companies are adopting in the region and, and where they have built a lot of facilities around is what they call renewable diesel in North America. Over here in Asia and Europe, we call it more hydrogenated vegetable oils. What it basically means it is a, a better fuel, uh, renewable fuel than the typical biodiesels the Europeans are producing that we have produced a lot in Malaysia and Indonesia and in Brazil. So it is a different chemical process. The output is better. You don't have a lot of those issues with engines and blending levels and da 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 From that angle, it's good. Um, and it still means you need one liter of kind of a vegetable oil or a used cooking oil or an animal fat. So some kind of a fatty oily substance to produce one liter of that fuel. And the industry basically has said, well, if we need to lower emissions, we're gonna jump on, on that technology because it has proven to work. It seems to kind of make it all happen. And the regulator has said, yeah, no problem. 
and we're going to give you a carbon footprint for all of your inputs. So you want to use a waste oil because that has the lowest carbon footprint. And if you're producing a biofuel from that waste oil, your carbon footprint of that fuel is really low. You only need to blend a little bit in the cars in, in California to actually make a big reductions of emissions happen. If you're using fresh oils from canola or soybean, your carbon footprint is higher than from waste oil. And, and so you have to blend a bit more, you have to produce more from it. So a lot of these facilities were built to produce that biofuel in, in North America. And very quickly on, they figured out, we're not gonna get enough of that used cooking oil because we want it, the Europeans want it, the Asians want it. We have to pay quite a bit of a premium for it um, to actually get it because that oil for us as a biofuel producer is more valuable as a waste oil than the fresh oil because it has a better carbon footprint. So it is a, a strange concept to think about, but it is one of those markets that has proven that the industry is willing to pay for low carbon products if the framework is set right. And it seems like the framework is set right. So basically a lot of these biofuel producers in North America now have figured out, we're not gonna get the, the waste oil we need, we're going to have to go for the second and third best options. And that's kind of the fresh vegetable oil. So we're going to see a massive extra amount for soybean oil demand. But also our friends up in Canada have said, well, we've got a Canadian canola crop over here and it can produce twice as much oil from a ton of seed than soybean oil. So we're happily processing more canola in Canada, shipping that oil down into the US fuel market. And so right now, as we speak, there are several big Canadian canola processing plants built. Um, if they all are operational in a few months time, it will increase the capacity of the country by 55, maybe 60% from the level where they stand. And if you look at Canada in the canola space, they are the big gorilla in the room. I mean, we feel like a big country here with our 8 million tons or so that we produced in the last record season. These guys in a normal season produce something like 20 million tons. So about two and a half times as much as we do in a record season, they do in a normal season. Usually they're shipping half of it. So 10 million as seed to the world export market and compete heavily against our exports. And they're shipping or are using 10 million tons and process it domestically. Now, if you're increasing your processing capacity, by 50, 60%, it basically means they're gonna use another 5 million, 6 million tons of canola seed maybe in, in a few months time when those plants are operational. So it's a matter of timing when in 2024, those plants start to run, when they suck up a lot of that crop. And that will be good news for us because it means that there will be less export available. Yes, the Canadian farmers will try to increase the crop, but we don't see them producing all the volumes to keep the export at a similar pace, which basically means Every buyer in the world who wants to have canola needs to look at the alternatives. So less coming out of Canada is the big one. Who's the second one in the market? Well, that was for a long time Ukraine, but we know that Ukraine is in, in the world market there and has issues as well with the war. And uh, even so, they're producing quite still good numbers of oil seeds. The crop is not as good as it could be. And the other one out there is us in Australia. So. Um, as I said, I'm not thinking that tomorrow the market will go through the roof for canola, but I'm optimistic that those structural changes in North America will benefit our farmers here on the ground in about 10, 12 months time when a lot more of these plants are running. Um, and, and that can be good news because all the buyers in the world need to come to us. But it is all about the demand side. So maybe some of the buyers in the world like China or Mexico who right now import canola because they say, well, it, it has a feed component and it has, a, has an oil component. They may actually just say, oh, 
you're going to buy some of the canola meal from Canada because they are now producing more of it and they can't use it domestically. And, and so maybe they just buy some canola meal there and maybe we buy some palm oil. And, and so with that, maybe those traditional canola seed users may just shift over and, uh, and import meal and import some other vegetable oil. Uh, so with that, um, I'm not campaigning here that we're going to go back to those all-time high of uh, canola prices that we had last year, but I'm thinking canola will be a good crop for our Australian farmers for a few years because the market is structurally changing to an advantage for us. So as you go up and down and round in circles, I hope you're finding this conversation just as fascinating as I am. There's just so many incredible insights coming through, Stefan. Thank you. So can we turn our attention back to the Australian winter crop, you recently published the Rabo Outlook for Australia around our winter crop production. Would you mind just speaking to that and, you know, even if you can, a state-by-state insight to wheat, barley, canola perhaps? Sure. Um, so what we usually do is uh, we release two crop-focused reports a year. So this is the one that focuses on the area, given we're kind of at a very early stage here in the season. Um, but we're building with our models also a yield on top of it and then uh, ultimately a volume output. Later in the season, we're going to go in and we're going to have a, a real proper production estimate. So right now, I think the, the messages that we want to convey from the report is we're surveying our network and, and we're using also that we have 60 offices across the country to get local insights in terms of are you farmers in the region planting more or less and how much more or less of which crop. Um, we see actually the area across all the winter crops um, so that it includes the wheat but also includes barley or canola and so on. Uh, across all of those winter crops we see a slight increase in acreage um, just not even half a percent higher, but we're talking about a crop number close to or an acreage number close to 23 and a half million hectares, which is a is a really good outcome. But if you look across the states, um, we see a drop in Western Australia and maybe a little bit of a small drop down in uh, in Victoria, while in South Australia, as well as here along the East Coast, uh, we see a slight increase in acreage across those winter crops. Um, coming to the different ones uh, on the wheat side, we see about a 2% increase in the wheat area. Uh, we see on the barley side about a 1.3% increase of acreage across the whole country. And on the canola side, we see uh, a little bit of a reduction in terms of acreage by about 8%, um, which sounds a lot, but Let's also be honest, if you look over a longer period of time of a five-year average, for example, that's still a good 20% higher than, than normal in terms of the canola area. We're just not going to get to that massive high number that we had last year when prices were so good during planting. You mentioned before fertilizer prices coming back. Do you think that's driving people's decision point around canola versus a cereal? Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not enough of an ag agronomist to actually answer that properly, but um, clearly all of the fertilizers play into the into the mix. But I think especially uh, the prices during planting. Even so, well, if if somebody would have told you two three years ago. 
the canola price that you can get today, you would still say, oh, that's not a bad price. Uh, clearly, if you look now back into a season where we were well above $1,000 uh, during planting last year, it looks like, oh, the price is rather low. So with that, I think it is it is partly the fertilizer side, but it is also a lot just around last year, people just put a bit more in just being opt opportunistic given the high prices that we saw during planting. And we're seeing just a bit of a more normalization also for crop rotation reasons. Are there any notable changes by what on the demand side domestically? Um, not really. Uh, we, we don't have a lot of, of change here, be it on the canola side. I mean, it's it's always kind of a, a more or less stable market uh, that you have there and most of the volumes go in the export market. Uh, so no, we don't see a whole lot of change from that angle. The good news clearly is uh, we are still seeing the numbers of cattle uh, increasing across the country, which means that also some of those feedlots still need a little bit more. The economics on a feedlot look maybe good in terms of the input side. So given the grain prices are lower, that's nice for them, but clearly also the economics don't look as good because all of those beef prices have come down massively. Um, so with that, it's just not a no brainer to say all, all the feedlots will go in very hard and buy all the, the feed um, because clearly their their overall margins um, have have changed with the with the beef price down. So all in all, um, don't see a whole lot of domestic changes here in the near term, uh, and it's it's rather more about our export competition and uh, and the world market will tell us how prices will have to play out for us. Plus, clearly, the question for us in Australia, and that's what the report can't cover very deeply is what the yield really will be. So we went in and we said, look, let's use our, our model for yield and we come in with that. But we can also have a look at those really tough uh, El Nino years that we had. So whenever you look at an El Nino, it usually means our East Coast farming sector has uh, a dryness. So we went through and, and modeled uh, different scenarios. First of all, it's not actually clear yet if we're going to get an El Nino. So right now, chances are around 50%, um, which also means maybe we just make it through and we don't get one. Maybe we get one that comes in too late to hurt the crops because it's also all about timing. When does it get dry? Um, so there's still a bit of a question mark around that. But also then in terms of how intense are the dry or will the dryness be, uh, we looked at those El Nino years in the past and we analyzed them in more detail to actually say, how bad can it be? And, and you see that some strong El Nino events, yes, can have a real devastating yield impact, but we also had some El Nino events that, well, cut us down on the on the yield side. So all to say, um, we're not thinking right now that we have another 40 million tons on the wheat output side like we did last year, and, and we're not banking on, a, on an export number that is as high as last season's, but I think that is not a surprise to anybody. Um, but I think just wanna also, uh, make sure our farmers need to think about what can be the, the yield impact that clearly is very important for your marketing processes because uh, it's usually a tough one if you sold a lot in advance and then you figure out you don't have the volumes um, to cover all of those uh, commitments. On the other side, um, if we don't get an El Nino, if we get a weak El Nino, if we get an El Nino rather late, we can still get a pretty decent crop over here and that would be good for us. And as mentioned on the pricing side, um, that's also where we may then see some differences between the regions. And clearly locally, we've already seen that some of those basis levels have moved quite a bit. If you look last year compared to the exchanges in the US, 
we had quite a bit of a discount here in the region um, uh, that has kind of narrowed because I think locally we're seeing, yes, global prices have come down qu much quicker than local prices, just also because we have to realize that uh, we may have a volume issue uh, if El Nino hits us. So I think there's a lot of thinking in here, which is benefiting local prices, but also makes it more difficult to just say, well, the Canadian crop is this and therefore the export are that and the US price will move like this. Locally, basis will play, I think, continued and interesting role, but at least we don't have that massive discount like we had last year where, well, the world market was just running all the way up, especially the exchanges, while uh, our local prices couldn't keep up that up pace. So with that, Stefan, and, and with that broad overview, do you have a view on pricing generally across commodities? Um Yes, we do. Um, we release it to our clients. My problem is a little bit on a podcast um, that everybody can listen to it. And I always, as a bank, need to be very careful if I'm giving financial advice. So what my compliance uh, folks usually don't like is that I go out and say, prices in August will be this. And I tell that to everybody publicly. But as a client of Rabobank, uh, we're releasing every month our monthly forecast with prices globally as well as also um, in our local reports, we're taking some of that and we're releasing and converting it over into what we think is happening price-wise um, in the commodities. But uh, forgive me, Jeremy, if I can't uh, disclose all of that uh, publicly on the podcast, um, but I'm gonna get in trouble with my compliance group. <laughs> oh, I completely understand. Um, and there's a lot of moving parts within that as well. So I completely understand. Um, what else do we need to be aware of, Stefan? It's been a pretty comprehensive outlook. What else? Oh, well, we, we covered a whole lot, but I think that the, the big two themes that I think will stay with us for a, a long time is geopolitics and it is sustainability. Um, and I know that, uh, well, some farmers are tired of hearing the, the sustainability word and, and so on. On the other side, um, it's just not going to go away. So maybe let me start with the sustainability side before I go to geopolitics. Um, my view on that is that companies are, so let's start on the country level. A lot of countries are committing to reducing emissions. A lot of them take the route of cutting absolute emissions, which means they somehow want to make that work, which also means that they have to look at which industries have to make change. If we're looking over to New Zealand, it is a very, very big theme across that country, uh, reducing emissions because the primary industry sector is made up largely by ruminants, so the dairy, the beef, the sheep guys and so on. So there's a lot of pressure on those guys. Um, over here, clearly we have agriculture, which will probably ask to change, but we also have other sectors in the industry uh, that will be asked to change the emissions. So with that, we need to see how the policy shapes. But let me look at the supply chain. And that is actually the, the fascinating one for me because if you look across the supply chain, we see so many food companies, so many fiber companies, so many textile companies. So all of those guys who need inputs from farm, be it cotton, be it wool, be it uh, all kinds of grains, oil seeds, beef, a lot of those companies along the food chain have commitments and a commitment is very weak. You basically just say, yeah, I want to cut emissions uh, by 2050, I'll be carbon neutral, whatever. But a lot of them are moving to targets. 
and targets are much more tangible. A target basically means that you're committing and say, by 2030, I have cut 30% of my scope one emissions and 60% of my scope three and whatever. So with that, a lot of the industry pressure is changing towards cleaning up emissions really, and not only saying, oh, I've got a big number out there for in 20 years time when I'm as a CEO, I'm not around anymore and the next ones can care about. And these companies need to make it happen because uh, if you look at the consumer base around the world, it is very easy to target those big companies. Um, we see right now as a German, a lot of young kids um, who glue themselves on cars, on autobahns, on interstates, whatever, and blocking the traffic. And, and basically, they're trying to blackmail the country to change the climate rules and get tighter on that. Well, who says that they're not gluing themselves next week to the front door and to every truck coming out of a specific food company, gluing themselves on a supermarket and, and shaming them. And in social media times, it is very easy to get that emotional wave running. So I think a lot of the food companies and, and the companies along the chain need to live up to what their commitments and what their targets are um, to avoid that. And if you look at a, a food company, the interesting part is you're starting at a retailer who's selling your your goods to the consumer the majority of their emissions and i'm not talking just the big majority pretty much all of their emissions 98 or more percent of the emissions of a supermarket are not in their own operations they're not even related to the energy they're buying to keep the light on or to to let the refrigerator come 98 of the emissions of a typical supermarket are coming from what is called scope 3 and that's basically up and down the supply chain. So what happens with the food after it is has left the supermarket? Will it waste somewhere in a in a in a um, landfill and and produce methane? But the bigger pocket actually for them is coming from the goods they're buying. And well, what is a supermarket buying? Well, they're buying all the food stuff. So they go to the food company, and the food company has still 95% of their emissions once again in that scope three pocket. So out of their own operations. And once again, the big pocket for those food guys is in the stuff they're buying. And what is a food company buying? Well, all kinds of ingredients that come from a farm, be it grains, be it meat, be it dairy. So they go to the farmer and they will say, look, guys, you need to help us to clean up our scope three emissions and not only mine as a food producer, but also for the supermarket. And if the farmer then says, well, it already worked a couple of times that I just called the guy uh, one step further up the chain from me and they turn to their uh, farm input suppliers or for the seed, for the fertilizers, for the chemicals, and will say, hey, uh, wanted to give you a call about emission reductions, then their farm input suppliers will probably say, thanks for calling because I actually wanted to give you a call, farmer, because a lot of my emissions are in scope three and they're not so much coming from the stuff I'm buying because I'm the one producing a lot of that stuff, but actually they're heavily related to the things I'm selling and what happens to them on farm. So the farmer is essential for the whole food supply chain to actually clean up emissions and that's why we see regenerative agriculture taking off very big in many regions of the world and we just released a report around that how much area is coming in into that but i think that's kind of where also the supply chain will ask for change the question clearly is does it just come with here's the new industry guidelines and that's what you have to do Will they take the easy route and just figure out that maybe country A is producing more sustainable than country B and all I'm buying is now stuff from country A and I'm avoiding country B? Who will pay a premium or not? Clearly as an export nation, that will be very difficult for us because we're shipping a lot of things to Asia 
and uh, and yes there are some big food companies and some big retailers and some big uh, fast food restaurants and so on who will commit and who want to have low carbon products but there's also a large market that might not be willing to pay for it so that's the challenge i see also coming from the supply chain but as i said right or i said earlier if the rules around low carbon are set very well like in the biofuel market in north america there are people who are willing to pay for low carbon products because it make economic sense so that is i think the challenge for the supply chain as well as our politicians to find a way that we're not always working with a stick but they're actually working with a carrot for our farmers to make changes on farm um, and I'm hopeful that uh, we're going to get some of that done as well to reward for the services because I see that as a real service that farmers are delivering, not only to their own land and for the good of their family when they give that land to the next generation, but also for the wider industry, for the wider world in terms of reducing emissions. But it will be a challenge and, and it will be a lot of ups and downs and a lot of setbacks, and, and, and but there might also be some opportunities in here. So sustainability, the big one. The other big one, as mentioned, geopolitics. And that's where we just think, um, despite maybe the positive signs we recently see with coal coming out of uh, Australia into China again, uh, Bali potentially going into China again. Overall, we still see that the world is getting more challenging with uh, geopolitics. Uh, we still see that the world is more and more polarizing into blocks of the well, maybe Westerners around the US and uh, and maybe the, the China on the other side will we trade commodities in a few years in, in, in Chinese currency rather than in US dollar. There's a lot of, of change that could come from geopolitics, which for an export nation like ours means um, we need to be as flexible as we can be. Um, the door can go open and we benefit from it and the door of shipping our goods to a country can also close very quickly and we need those options to go somewhere else. Uh, we've made it successfully happen with Bali to go somewhere else, but clearly we have a lot of products that are very heavily depending on the Chinese demand. Um, that's in the dairy space, that's in the wool space, that's in the meat space. So there's a lot of stuff going to China still um, where there's also risk for us. So geopolitics will stay with us. But as a farmer, well, you can break your head over it as much as you want. It will come the way it comes. So um, don't lose your sleep over that one. Um, if you need to pick a fight, sustainability or geopolitics, where to spend your energy on. If I were a farmer, I would spend it on sustainability and I would try to figure out what can I do on farm if I need to change, if I want to change. I'm not saying you need to change right now, but you want to understand your carbon footprint. You want to understand what are the big kind of real differentiator. So if you want to change something, where do you spend your energy, your money on and to make a real transition happening? We're actually doing that as, as a cooperative right now with our, our clients. So we're using Professor Eckhart from uh, Melbourne University, who is uh, one of the leading um, researchers in the space of, of sustainability and carbon uh, to just run what we call carbon workshops. So we bring in our clients for two days, have them sit in the room, discuss their case studies on farm, uh, fill in those uh, Excel sheets around uh, carbon reporting and, and carbon calculators uh, and, and how that works for their farm, just to get an understanding for those interested clients how to do it. And, and I think that's the first important step. Um, try and educate people about what it means, how it can come. And there are some people who are well advanced and, and that's perfect, but there's a lot of farmers who look at it and say, wow, this is just overwhelming, where do I start? 
and and so that's kind of what we we try to do where it starts the next thing i think i see on the sustainability side is is a request for data so everybody along the supply chains governments everybody will want to have your data and uh, we're working also once again with a larger group on the supply chain to just say let's find a way that we ask all for the same data in the same format that we're not going with 25 different people to the same farm ask them to fill in 25 different excel and online tools but rather find a way that we can all agree on this is kind of what should be uh, coming from farm in terms of data to make everybody's life easier but it will mean at some point in time people will ask for more data from farm i'm i'm 100 convinced about it so our goal is not to avoid that. Our goal is just to make the pain for the farmer as low as possible, that they don't have to do it multiple times in, in different ways. Yeah, this whole sustainability piece, it's a, it's a new conversation. And I think to your point, I think so many farmers are still trying to um, become aware and understand um, what it means and, and what they will need to do so they can be proactive around yep. it um, and make meaningful change. It's yeah. really nice to hear your perspective on that and um, and also on the, the agri-political um, landscape as well. Stefan, I'm mindful of time. I think you've been very generous with, with the insight that you've shared. We've had a pretty significant walk around the globe um, to get your insights globally and really good to understand what your view of our local production is. And as I say, it's really nice to sort of get a sense of your collective view on, on the sustainability issue as well. So really appreciate that. Um, really appreciate just um, how openly you've shared your insights. Thank you very much and, and really appreciate your time. No, thanks for having me. And 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 uh, that's kind of what I see my role. And, and that's also how we as Rabobank play it. I mean, uh, we want to share knowledge and uh, the more people work with us and talk to us, the better it is. Um, so um, maybe it is helpful for some of your farmers. And uh, whenever you want to refinance, think about that Dutch company with the orange logo about it as well. Um, but clearly, uh, that's not the purpose why I'm on this podcast here. We're really all about making sure that we, we help the wider communities and the wider farming sector. And with that, um, thanks for having me, Jeremy. It has been uh, really fun. And uh, well, if you get bored, Jeremy, you can also listen to our Rabobank podcast. We also have a channel out there. We're usually streaming also two different podcasts a week from uh, global topics where we just invite some of our analysts from the US or South America to talk to us, but also local issues about uh, our dairy or beef or grain specialists discussing uh, local topics in more detail. So if you get bored or your listeners get bored, um, there's more to it than uh, than your own podcast. <laughs> Stefan, where can people find that and what's it called? Um, it's very easy. Uh, no matter what kind of podcast your app you're using, just uh, put the search button then on and, and go to Rabo Research and there are probably five or six different channels popping up. Um, you should select the one for Australia and New Zealand. Um, but uh, similarly, you could listen easily to what our uh, colleagues in North or South America are doing because uh, we're financing also farmers in those regions and we're running a bit different podcasts which are more tailored to those regions there. But um, Rabo Research, search for it and you'll easily find it. Brilliant. And look forward to calling on you again in a few months' time, perhaps to focus on some protein discussion around beef, lamb, even wool and other. So it'd be great just to just to understand your view on on the other side of 
the farming landscape, if that would be okay. That would be awesome. And uh, I may actually uh, have you record that one with our beef specialist rather than with me, uh, but we'll see. But that also means that our, your listeners don't have to listen to my Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of dialect um, and, and rather get a nice Aussie accent back in here. Hasta <laughs> la vista, baby. <laughs> Good to be with you, Jeremy. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for yours as well, Stefan. Take care. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Profitable Farmer podcast by Farm Owners Academy. If you're new to this show, be sure to follow us. If you've been a long-time listener, let your friends know about us or come continue the conversation in the Profitable Farmer Facebook group. All the best as you grow your business and create your freedom farm. Until next time, keep being incredible.